Welcome to Grassroots Nation, a podcast from Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies, a show in which we dive deep into the life, work, and guiding philosophies of some of our country's greatest leaders of social change. Aruna Roy is an activist, feminist, and social leader of independent India in a category of her own. She has been at the forefront of several people-led movements, such as the Right to Information movement, the Right to Work campaign, which led to the establishment of the MGNREGA, and the Right to Food movement. A feminist and Gandhian, she believes that change comes from within, and all her life's choices have been motivated by her values and her desire to contribute towards the realization of the founding ideals of our nation. She brings to her work a deep sense of humility and respect for her fellow citizens. Aruna Roy was born in 1946 in pre-independence India into a family with a history of public service. In 1967, at the age of 21, she joined the Indian Administrative Service and was one of only 10 women to qualify that year. In 1974, at the age of 28, Aruna Roy left the IAS to move to Tilonia village in Rajasthan to work at the Social Work Research Centre, better known as the Barefoot College. She then co-founded the Mazdoor Kisan Shakti Sangatan, the MKSS or the Organisation for the Empowerment of Workers and Peasants in 1990. Aruna was awarded the Raymond Magsesi Award for Community Leadership in 2000 for empowering Indian villagers to claim what is rightfully theirs by upholding and exercising the people's right to information. Aruna Roy is in conversation with her longtime friend and associate, journalist and curator of Ahimsa Conversations, Rajni Bakshi. This is the first of two episodes featuring Aruna Roy. We recommend you listen to both episodes. Hello and welcome, Aruna. Hi, Rajni. So good to have you here and thank you so much for making time for this. So, Aruna, what were the childhood or teenage years influences which shaped your early working life. I know because we've been friends for so long that your father was a major influence and your mother also. But can you just briefly cover that milieu? Because I know it was a whole milieu which inspired you. Actually, my parents were born in the beginning of the 20th century, my father 1910, my mother 1920. But they came from uh, Tamil Nadu, Chennai or Madras as it was then called. They came from very progressive families in the context of their times. My grandparents married into subcaste in those days. And my father was born into a family which believed in workers' rights and my father's uncle actually mobilized one of the first rickshaw-pullers strikes in Chennai. And he also went to study in London and came back. And he was enough influenced by progress, change, socialism, etc., but didn't go the whole hog. But ended with trade unionism and he began a paper called Swadharma, which he used to edit in those times. And he was tracked by the British police. And my appa was his editor for that magazine. But Appa and my father's older brother were both sent to Shantiniketan by this uncle, Elayar, who had come back from England with these modern views, Metsi Aldas. My father and my uncle were sent to Shantiniketan at the time when it was at its heyday. With Robi Babu was there and C.F. Andrews, 
So it made a very lasting and very deep impression on my father. So he came culturally revolutionized, which I think is very important to understand in the context of today's India. And then he had his politics with the trade union movement and he got associated with Gandhi and he was an admirer of Eamon Roy at that time. So he grew up with a variety of ideological positions and he was a part in that sense of that generation which did not dismiss any ideology and did not get reactive to any ideological position but tried to understand the best of many worlds which is what India has lost today and therefore it bears repetition and emphasis to say because of that kind of richness in his life and my mother came from a family which had socially actually rejected caste her parents intermarried between two sub-castes their marriage notice was not published in the Hindu my grandmother had done her senior Cambridge my great-grandmother was literate, her mother was literate, so it came through a huge female literacy, that side. My grandmother did many things. She worked with leprosy patients in Chennai, then she worked with women's groups, then she was an honorary magistrate. So my ma grandmother was a feminist ideal, in one sense, of or what a woman could do, being married, but still, and bearing children, but yet work outside the house. My mother did mathematics and physics. She was also a sportswoman. She was a tennis player. So when my parents got married, they were economically not elite. They were very ordinary. But the culture that they brought into the family was of the best, in my opinion. And we grew up understanding music, of course, because I've heard Fayaz Khasa, I've heard Karim Khasa, I've heard all those great musicians, but I've also heard Aryakudi Ramanujam. Ayengar, I've heard, you know, all the great Bhagavaders and singers of the South. I've seen Bala Saraswati dance. So all these were essential part of my growing up. At the same time, politically, we were made to understand that there should be no caste system. And my father was aggressively anti-untouchability. So he had grown up with a history of practicing untouchability at home. So no question of practicing any kind of untouchability, particularly with caste, but with every other kind of untouchability and discrimination. So with this extraordinarily rich, informal or non-formal background, I would have been ashamed if I had done nothing. It was, in my opinion, a very privileged upbringing that I had. So was this a factor in you and Banka finding each other? Because though Banka came from a very, very different background, by the time he met you, he was already doing the work in rural areas about wells, etc. So very briefly, if we could just cover your meeting and you know your decision to get married. Actually, Banka was not doing it when I met him. Really? So you met him what, by 65? We were both students at university together. And when I met Bunker, he was a great sportsman. He was the university tennis captain. He was India's number one in squash. And swam for college and played cricket. That was his great popularity zone. Everybody knew him because of his sports. But he went to Palamu when, during the famine. And we were all very impressed because of all of us, he was the most politically aware of poverty, of dearth, of all of those things. And he went and came back 
And yes, it was a very important factor that really separated him from the rest of the class and made him look and appear, and he really was concerned with issues that were on the fringes of our conscience. It's true, that was the reason, that one of the criteria for which I think Bunker was very critically important to me. But there's another one that comes as a background to Bunker, that he's a Brahmo Samaji, which meant that in his family there are Muslims, there are Hindus, there are Parsis, there are Jews, there are Christians. There's every shade of every religion in his family, which to me was very attractive. As a person who believed in multicultural existence of life and living and, yeah. and its many manifestations. Yeah. So for me, it was also a very important thing. So Aruna, I know from my own family background that in the 60s, our elders quite validly believed that they were going to do nation building through the formal structures of the state. And so I've always seen your decision to join the IAS as, you know, in that continuum, that it was very rational, very reasonable at that stage to believe that you could serve the nation by being an IAS officer. Is that a fair description? And what was the process of disenchantment? What were some of the markers that disturbed you? Actually, I don't think it's a correct description of my reason to join the IAS. I did not want to join the IAS, let me put it quite clearly, that there was a great disrespect and disregard for status and position in my family. My father, who knew K.R. Narayanan very well, was president of India, they had met because of their mutual concern over Dalit politics and so on, didn't regard status or position as the final definition of a human being, or wealth. So, in a sense, we were non-conformists, almost bohemian in the way we thought. So, for us, the status of an IAS officer or a civil servant was always followed by many question marks, you know, as to how much did they really do. And you lived in Delhi, which was a bureaucratic city, and you saw the worst of bureaucracy. And some of the best, but the worst. Actually, the best of bureaucracy you find in the states, in the districts. You don't really find the best in Delhi. So it wasn't as if we were particularly enamored of the bureaucracy. Actually, the decision to join the IAS was because I was a woman who did not want to teach and who did not want to become a journalist. And what were the choices in those days? Or join the private sector. So eliminating, it was a process of elimination rather than a question of choice that I joined the IAS with the hope that being posted in remote districts and being able to see poverty at a much closer level, I would be actually in a position to do something for the people. Which of course steadily the hope declined and the possibilities shrunk and possibly that's the reason why I really left the IAS because three positions in which you can really do something. One is when you're an STM. The SDM. second is when you're a collector, when you're in charge of everything. The third is when you end up at the end of your career as secretary or head of the department when you can really do something. Otherwise, you're just pushing files and making notes which others overrule. At the age of 28, Aruna Roy left the IAS to move to Thelonia, where Bunker Roy was working at the Social Work Research Centre or SWRC. It was the beginning of her life in rural India. 
so in a sense your family is uh, uh, how shall we say disregard for or not giving importance to status then made it easier for you to leave because in many cases there would have been parental pressure not to leave the ias it was a value that we all shared and that as children we were brought up with that you value a human being not because of the status mm-hmm. very simple things at home like when my father's additional secretary visited home and his peon also came home they all sat together there was no question in my home of the peon being sent somewhere else to sit he may not have taken part in the conversation because he was not adequately prepared but he occupied the same space and he drank from the same cup many similar cups of tea so it it, it was a living condition that i understood very clearly so for my family there was my father was a little worried he thought that i might end up losing my freedom because i would work with a husband but that was a more feminist worry than a structural worry about status ultimately i also have total disregard for status i don't know what status today there and gone tomorrow kursi ka sawal hai aaj kursi hai kal kursi nahi hai and kursi ke sath sab chala jata hai i promise you when you sit on the kursi it's everything kursi gaya aur kuch nahi and also in a sense you know there are some deep spiritual learnings also in all this which i never stated but there is this i think a fundamental understanding which came from my mother and father that father was to call himself an atheist but that the spiritual understanding that human life is equal and matters no matter where it is not in a communist or a socialist perception but from a human perception and that was extremely important i think in the way we the children of my parents saw the world so what was it like then when you first moved to tolonia what were some of the surprises because i know you quit the ias and directly uh, went and became part of the swrc community what were some of the surprises for you at that stage and because i think if we understand what that experience was like then we can talk about the very very specific and unique contributions that you made in the swrc equation in the coming years it was very difficult it was a different world different politics and by politics i don't mean party politics it was different relationships between human beings were defined differently the idiom was absolutely different the world views were different even to begin a conversation was so difficult and activism which is a bad word today or social work which is perhaps a somewhat more acceptable term today or even being a worker a community worker the first thing you have to do is to strike up a conversation gandhi ji said the first thing you have to do is to listen but to listen that person has to have enough respect for you to consider you worth the listening that position of being in a place where they considered you worthy of even telling you what was wrong or right with them was difficult to reach so it was story i went to a village walked into a woman's house and i said to me aap se baat karne ke liye aayi hu i've come to talk to you i'm small 
Physically, I'm only five feet two inches tall. She was about five feet nine inches tall. So she towered over me. She looked me down, up and down, and she said to me, I have no time for you. Who asked you to come? And I was absolutely without words. I didn't know what to say to her. So I said, oh, no, I just thought I'd come and I would. She said, listen, I don't want to become a government officer. I don't want to be literate. I don't want to talk about the restrictions on women in traditional society. She said it all in Rajasthani. She said, buzz off. This was Thelonia proper or some other village? Thelonia village. Okay. She said, please go. That's the door. Scoot off. I came home. I thought, God in heaven, I came back to work. This was, we lived in a campus of work and space of work and all of that was. So I said to myself, what the hell will I do? Then I realized, you know, if someone from the United States of America, a very big professor of something or academician or politician, come to my house in New Delhi and just rang the bell and said to me, I want to talk to you. When I was busy, would I have talked to that person? I would have politely said, look, sorry, I don't have the time. Why would she? And her world was as different to mine as mine was to the foreigner. And why would I have given her time? Why would she give me time? Why was the reason for her to give time when she had to look to the animals, cook the food, go to the fields, cut the, you know, cut the grass, bring fodder back for the animals, milk the buffalo or the cow or whatever she had, cook the food? No, no question. So I went back and then I realized the timing was wrong. I should have gone in the evening to see her when she had time. The conversation was all screwed up. And just landing up like that needed a companion who was from the community who would kind of act as a liaison and explain to her what I was in her language and idiom so that she would feel a little more comfortable with me. So this is just one extremely simple example, but there were many complications. But I was determined to speak Rajasthani, which I now speak. And I was determined to reach out to people in the matters of their own interest and not impose on them. And that was fundamental learning because it's really taken me a long political route. You know, Aruna, but at the same time, you also over the years forged some very intense bonds with similar people and they have been really lifelong relations uh, and today you are grandmother to many of these people's children and I think now even great-grandchildren. Can you just maybe say something about how some of those relationships emerged and those bonds? What, was, what were the values which forged these very special bonds that you built both in Thelonia and later in Devdungri? So it's through understanding the condition of those people. So many myths. Teach them a skill. What skill do you teach them? They have the most marvelous skill of living in the most dire circumstances. With happiness, with dance, with music, with love and affection, with festivities. What have I got to learn? So the first thing is, you've got to understand that there's a lot more to learn than to give. With that humility, if one approaches those people, then there's a great deal of happiness, love, affection, camaraderie, and lifelong friendships, which I have with many of them. So in that process, you bring in politics, you bring in the wages, you bring in so many things. Why the hell should she learn sewing? 
this is great idea. There were two, three myths when I went to work. One was this myth that they needed to be taught a skill. For heaven's sake, have you ever looked at a woman digging and building as construction labor? And I'm going to jump many years. 20 years later, when I was fully formulated in my ideas about rural work, and I was working with them for their rights, I decided to work as a wage worker. <laughs> they told me, just buzz off. I could neither dig, nor could I shovel, nor could I lift the weight onto my head, 20 kilos in a tagari. I couldn't do that. And I was always delaying them, you know, because bringing down the rate of work. So they said to me, just go away. Devi, chali jau yaase. I, we don't want you here. So I understood. So the argument was formed. And I still argue that it's not unskilled labor. It's skilled labor. It's only a question of supply and demand. Tomorrow, if we do not have enough construction workers, they are going to earn far more than anyone sitting in an office. It's only thing is that there are more of them and the less of demand. But it's just a skill. And we've done it to jump again to MKSs. When we get interns now, they all go and work half a day on Narega work sites. And they come back and in the when we unpack that experience, almost all of them say it's a skill. And they say, how can we call it unskilled? And we'll never again say that poor people don't work. So that trajectory began with a drudgery study we did for government in Delhi. And Devaki Jain happened to be the advisor. And when they said drudgery, was cooking. Just look at this. One was the machine, sewing machine. Then the other thing was cooking is drudgery. So we have to give them smokeless chulas. And we have to give them solar cookers. I thought, this is my need as a middle-class woman. What is her need? We simply don't even know. And in that, with Devaki, we, I had an argument that, you know, you, you cannot do, get to know intimate, real information through a survey sheet. It holds even today. You go through a survey sheet and they'll tell you what you want to know, what really is the case. If I can further diverge and divulge into another story, when once we asked for a group of people had come from Jaipur, professors, NSS, they had come in to meet women and they had met these dais and they had said, oh, you should have toilets. Why don't you have toilets? That's the third concern. Okay, toilets, toilets, toilets. So all these dais said, yes, yes, of course we must have toilets. Very important when we get old, we don't can't go to the loo and when our daughters-in-law get pregnant and blah, 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 blah. And all of them said, you're in unison. This is in the 80s. Huh? So my friend Renuka Pamecha was absolutely impressed. She said, wow, it's a huge change. I said, don't you take it at face value. So after they left, I went back and I said, oh, it's been decided that you will get toilets, that you will get free stones and free building material. You just have to contribute your labor and your toilets will be made. Dead silence. Then one woman said, I don't think I want it. It'll be difficult. No, no, not for me. What about the other one? She has a daughter-in-law who's pregnant. That one said, no, 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 I don't want it. None of them wanted the toilet. So I said, two hours ago, you said you wanted the toilet. Then they said it to me in Hindi. They said, in Rajasthani and Hindi. They said, usko to bataya 
वो सुनने वाली बात थी सुनाने वाली बात थी आपको हम जो बताएंगे वो मन की बात है हमारे मन में तो टॉयलेट की कोई जरूरत ही नहीं है और वो वही सुनना चाहते थे उनको सुना दिया सो आई से दिस सर्विस शीट्स आर लाइक दैट सो वी परसुएटेड द डिपार्टमेंट ऑफ साइंस एंड टेक्नोलॉजी फॉर होम वी डिड दिस डीएसटी वी सेड वील हैव टू डिफाइन ड्रजरी वी डोंट एक्सेप्ट योर डेफिनेशन ऑफ ड्रजरी एंड दे वुड हैव थ्रोन दिस होल प्रपोजल आउट इफ इट हैडन बीन फॉर देवी जैन शी सेड अरुणा इज राइट एस डब्ल्यू आर सी इज राइट वी शुड डिफाइन ड्रजरी then we did series of 11 big workshops where all the women sat and they called us galis also they come and they give us all these fundas and we don't want this this is not drudgery and they define in the end you know what was the most i don't know rajni if you'd like to guess what was the defined as the greatest drudgery bringing water no the greatest drudgery was collecting firewood because they had to steal it and elderly women were sent to collect firewood and they got to go alone and they could not lift it to their heads so many of them had prolapses because of this prolapsed uteruses because of this but in normal work the biggest drudgery according to them was being a beldar that is working with a mason when you go up those ladders with a tagari on your head full of bricks bricks stone cement whatever it was and you're always worried that somebody's peeping through your skirts so you have to keep your skirts tightly wound round your legs so that they are not doing that so they said that is the worst and the second they said was weeding when you have to bend and weed and you know till today there is no technology which has come which can be a hand operated weeding machine technology is only looked at men's issues it has not looked at women's issues whatever was a man's job technology has jumped in whatever was a woman's job is still on the fringes of concern just by the way so that is the kind of thing that really made me understand and in this process i made great many friends and many of them mangi who since passed away who was the intellectual who always questioned me and i wanted yeah. to know more then norti who has been and still continues to be one of my strongest relationships one who contested on minimum wages went up to the supreme court who questioned in part of the demand for mgnrga part of the rti who became sarpanch and actually marvelous five years because she brought in more than a crore of rupees every year into the panchayat she learnt the computers with swrc so she worked the computer she worked the computer and she taught her computer operator how to work the computer she downloaded the ngnrg information and the rules and regulations of the government and she looks exactly like old worker from a village she hasn't changed her appearance amazing women and amazing men and they have taught me i don't know how to describe it the value of life also what is which life? is above politics you know in one sense but it is politics as well the value of life and living and how important it is to combine dignity with demand with demand yes for rights yes. the demand for rights has to be understood as a demand for dignity so aruna before we move on to your decision to go to devdungri there's a very important episode that in many ways i think challenged some of these relationships because 
I know that there was not always, what shall we say, a like-mindedness on fundamental aspects of caste. But the episode I'm thinking of just now is the Devrala Sati episode. Aruna's years of activism spent in Rajasthan meant many hard confrontations with its feudal caste-based traditions, particularly in the way they have affected women. In 1987, a young Rajput woman called Roop Kaur was forced onto her husband's funeral pyre by her brother-in-law in the village of Devrala. She was 18. Thousands were reported to have witnessed the 18-year-old's death, which was glorified as a sacrifice hailing her as a Sati Mata. In 1992, Bhavani Devi was working as a Sathin as part of the state government's women development program. Sathins were social workers who would visit homes and offer women advice on family planning, hygiene and other issues. Bhavani Devi was brutally gang-raped when she intervened to stop the child marriage of a 9-month-old baby. Both of these incidents were hugely pivotal moments in Aruna's feminist journey. and both continue to inform her work years later and i remember you have spoken about this in other locations in other situations of how you had that meeting where people were preparing for a march that was going to happen in jaipur by all of us feminists and human rights activists and the women said to you but we believe in sati can you just narrate that whole story and how it ended roop kaur sati was for me one of the worst pre ayodhya and all this one of the worst things that ever happened because i felt my skin burning for several days you know just how do you ever put a live woman on a funeral pyre so roop kaur became a symbol for women of the middle class as one of the most horrendous violations of life attacks on life that could happen but when you carry rural women with you you just have to have them feel the same thing or understand it and i wanted to so we had this meeting of about 200 women who were supposed to go on the march the next day and i understood always that before you go on a march politically you must have a discussion because very many people come with very strange ideas and i'm also very concerned with probity and honesty so unless you really believe in it just to increase numbers there's no point having hordes of people so you must actually sympathize or understand the issue otherwise why go there at all so i used to pre precede every single agitation with a longish discussion on what was going to happen so we sat and we discussed and quite rightly i said do you believe in sat so they all said yes the becomes sat So sat is faith in truth, and therefore they feel that if you are truthful and you're pure, then the funeral pyre will light on its own. That's what they believe. The strength of your belief and faith will light the funeral pyre. You don't have to put a matchstick to it. They also believed that if you were put into a locked room and someone bolted and locked you in. the lock would open and the bolts would open and you would walk out free to go and be on the funeral pyre main apne pati ke sangha pati te badi ka koi nahi duniya tum kya cheez ho ladka kya cheez koi nahi je to sare naate 
पत्थर पे बैठकर कोई चीज नहीं सो दिस इट वी बिलीव इन सत बट दिस वाज नॉट सत रूप कवर वाज बर्नड बिकॉज़ द फ्यूनरल पायर वाज लिट बाय अ ब्रदर इन लॉ but the most interesting story is what an old when we were heatedly arguing sat nahi hai sat hai sat nahi hai sat hai and there were handful of us saying there's no sat and majority of saying that there is sat seemed as if we would go on it was midnight and this old woman got up and i was young then so she said to me beti you believe that man has been on the moon i said yes she said where did you see him i said on a screen So she said, "We have seen certain photographs. We have seen such in pictorial representation. So you believe in one kind of picture, and I believe in another kind of picture. Let's not contest it. Tomorrow we will go because Devrala, the brother-in-law, set fire the wood. So we will go there and let's set this aside and let's talk about tomorrow. Brilliant old woman! What a mind she had. So I have these vignettes in my mind of." the debt i owe so many of them for wisdom in tilonia i learned also how to work feminism through an institution and feminism has many values it's not just sexuality this is a come to now in public debate but it's much more than sexuality it's a set of values and if i had to describe myself in any way whatsoever i would say i'm a feminist because it believes in equality equality with compassion it also believes in the fact that there must be participation in decision making it believes in participatory methods of doing it i worked it out in telonia for me you see you can have an idea but you have to work it out and to see its feasibility so that happened and therefore the organization's entire participatory development methodology its system of decision making which is still there today evolved through what i would essentially call a feminist principle and that was in my opinion to me a very fundamental theoretical contribution to my understanding of politics so at that same point in the mid 80s aruna you were one of the key figures in the shaping of the women's development program if i recall correctly was sort of the flagship program happened in rajasthan then it spread to other parts of india and what were some of the challenges that this your faith in these values met with in that process i met northi this friend of mine i met bila i met hasina and i met mangi the four natural leaders women leaders so they used to talk about leadership programs for women i used to say forget it you can't teach leadership you can equip person with leadership qualities with skills with aptitudes with methods i can't can't teach leadership you know it's really out and i still believe it so these four women as an experiment i talked to anil bodia who was then development commissioner and said let us deal with their development of their skills let's see you spend tons of money training women on how to sew just there was a program called trisem government program as you teach women how to sew why can't you teach them skills of literacy you can teach them skills of what we call logical art, political articulation which we why can't we teach them that so he agreed so we had this amazing 6 months where we divided the day into two the first part of the day 
they learnt. The second part of the day, we learnt. I said there has to be equality in knowledge. They are very well informed people with a great deal of knowledge which you and I don't have. So there can be no just giving without taking with equal humility. So in the morning they learned literacy and in the evening they taught us caste politics, women's politics, social relationships, how it operates, what are the do's and don'ts in relationships in a village, what they would like to change, what they wouldn't like to change, what is migration, how do they migrate and what are the privations they undergo when they migrate, what are the problems of a woman getting married to her sister's widower when this tradition is there and what happens with the relationship patterns. So there's a whole issue and a poor Muslim woman who marries, has a civil marriage with a man from a different part of India. What happens to her? So there were variations of the theme and we heard all that. Anil Bodia then decided it had to be escalated and made into a program. And that was a women's development program of his and he shaped it. And there to substitute the informal education that these women got, he created Idara. And he had one wing with the government, which was the WDP, with the director, with a complete hierarchy of officials. And on this side, he had what was a learning input. In the course of that, so many women were trained. Sushmita trained the Satyans, and I trained so many of these organizing women, these project directors. The women were called Prachetas, who worked with the and those trainings were amazing trainings because I owe so much of my learning to those trainings about sexual harassment within the family, about the kind of privations women have to go through, the frustrations in the lower middle class, in the women of the lower middle class, what their dreams are and they want to be poets and they can't write poetry, they want to sing and they can't sing and they're creative all kinds of things, and then the, how their timidity and so on. Terrible stories emerged from those things, and I learned a lot, and I learned a lot about myself, and learned a lot about my own inhibitions, my own reservations, and I also learned about how unequal we are as trainers. We go there thinking that we are going to train somebody. What arrogance! Because the trainer is as much a learner as a trainer, which I still hold that there is no such thing as a leader, I feel. A leader is just a person who's temporarily there. But there is no such thing as a leader, which has gone into my understanding so many other concepts. So it was amazing learning for me. And one extraordinary thing was that in being together for so long, in those 21 days of living together, we reached a kind of high. And every time it happened because of the process of sharing and understanding. And it was something else, undescribable, but it has happened to many women's groups all over the world. It's not just us. But the transference of that to the Mahila Mela that we did in 1985 was amazing. Because I was asked if I would go to Nairobi for the women's decade and I said no. I told the people, you give us some money and we will have a thousand women get together. And 900 local women and 100 urban women got together. I won't go into it because it's too long, but the process of interaction and understanding finally led to the first big demonstration, organized demonstration against rape, at least in that part of Rajasthan, when we went on a silent rally in Kishingar. And it has lived on in people's memories. 
that of how things transform, like the Prabhat Ferry in the morning transformed into the rally, and how these transformations take place actually in the minds of people. So, building upon this, Aruna, how did the community then grapple with the Bhamri Devi rape case? Because it was in many ways an attack on the whole culture of Sathins and it was, of course, it was a personal tragedy. It was also a kind of a political act. How did it, all of you, you know, cope with it? Because in many ways, there were echoes of the, the Roopkamar sense of pain. In my mind, there are two separate things, actually. I don't couple Roopkamar with Bhavri Devi. By the time Bhavri Devi happened, I was in MKSS. So my whole political formulation of support was very different. Thousands of us women there, but women working and fighting for rights and understanding wages and understanding sexual assault on the body. In the case of Bhavri Devi, I think it was the first feminist issue which was taken up by the WDP. It had been taken up outside, but the WDP had not taken up any such thing. And it was something which called for strong support to Bhavri and an affirmation of those values. And it did happen across all ideologies and in that mass support for Bhavri emerged a politics which has not gone as far as it should have in Rajasthan, but it did change each one of its units. And MKSS was the lead group that broke the cordon on the day we broke the cordon. And many of us, one of our fellow beings got hit badly by a beaten and had to have stitches and all that. And we broke the cordon and then to and it brings me to another area of how do you deal with that fear when you face an armed constabulary with nothing in your hands and the absurdity of calling non-violent protest cowardly. It's still something that baffles me. It requires the greatest courage in the world to face that armed, layered group of police constables and women who stand there to beat you up, to go there and actually break it. So brought Gandhi in to me at that stage and I thought I had understood him before in all the protests, but in this facing of violence, I really understood the strength of nonviolence and how really strongly you have to believe in what you think is right to face that beaten and that rifle and that gun pointing at you. The Sathin community was not cowed down by the fear that was, because I think the whole attack on Bhavri Devi was also an attempt to instill fear in other women who were doing similar work. I wouldn't say that all the Sathins were there, a substantial amount of them were there, Sathin community. And actually, progressively it has become a real, if you look at what the Sathins are like today in Rajasthan, it's really a watered down version of what began as a very progressive and very strong women's group. Now they are functionaries. You know the transformation of a woman worker into a functionary. A functionary is a government servant. You know, you really do what you are told to do. But a woman's worker is somebody who decides for herself what is a vital necessity for the dignity of women or for the rights of women and do it. Yes, which was the case here because she was basically resisting a child marriage. She was all... Satins and the WDP were given a directive by the government of Rajasthan to stop 
child marriage. It was on that directive that she went to stop that child marriage. So she was a functionary as well as a woman worker, both, when she did that. So maybe this is a good point then to take up the question of change from the top, as you said just now, by directive, and the organic and rooted social transformation that is required to, you know, abolish a concept like child marriage. And over the years, are you seeing a progression towards the progressive side or is that kind of organic change from below still too slow? I don't think that there are these absolute categories. And I really think that why did I? My great-grandmother was married at the age of seven. But why did I get married at the age of 24? Or why did my mother get married at the age of 25? One has to look at oneself and one's own changes. And then you understand that it's many things. It's power. How much power did my mother have or did I have? Or my grandmother have who also got married at the age of 19? How much power did we have to face society? How much power did we actually have to argue our way out into a position of declaring our rights? If those women have that power, they'll also be like that. And they are now, more or less. It's amazing. Rural Rajasthan is not what it was 40 years ago. Our girls who even take the cows and the sheep herding, wear jeans and they wear tops and they are modern and they all go to beauty parlors and God knows it's huge transformation. And women get married much later. And unfortunately, when they were married younger, it was bride price, which meant that the man gave money to the women's family to take the girl away. Now dowry has crept in. They're getting married much older, but dowry has crept in. And you have to now give dowry. So there's always an up and a down in all these things. And I think changes have happened. But that's the argument, no, that if you bring in literacy and you bring in schooling and you bring in, and I'm differentiating between education and schooling, and I always have. So you bring in schooling and you bring in a smattering of possibilities of change. Then other things in the social strata also change. When Mangi was asked, for instance, she was brilliant. Mangi, my other friend, who yes. since passed away, also a Dalit, beautiful woman. She was asked by this group of, again by people from Jaipur, why do you get your children married so early? So she said, you know, when we get one child married, we get a whole lot married. So the eldest is about 17 or 18 and the youngest is about 6 and the whole lot get married because it's cheaper for us. So in one go we get, but they don't go to their in-laws. They go much later and that is called Gona. She said, we don't send them off. She said, we are very stupid people. She said, I got married early. My daughter will get married when she's 17 or 16. Maybe my granddaughter will get married at 24. She said, okay, very sarcastically. She said, we are very stupid people. We are gamars. So we disobey the law. But you people are very literate. How many of you have given dowries or received dowries? Dead silence because they'd all either given or received dowries. So she said, yes. So you come to us with a superiority telling us we shouldn't have child marriage. How many of you have not spent money on your daughters and sons' weddings going beyond all limits of the law? So that's where I stand. I said, yeah, there are many things that are right or wrong. But why don't we ever introspect? We go there with such a feeling of superiority. And I always feel that when I go there, 
They look at something that is unacceptable. There is a flip side of the coin which has my face on it. And I have to look at it to see where am I and what did I do wrong. In the next episode, Aruna speaks about her move to Devdungri and she recollects moments from her journey that began with the MKSS and resulted in the Right to Information Act. Grassroots Nation is a podcast from Rohini Nilekini Philanthropies. For more information, go to rohininilekiniphilanthropies.org or join the conversation on social media at rnp underscore foundation. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you for listening to Grassroots Nation.